Hi, I'm Mel. And I'm Sass. And you're listening to The Last Stretch, a sports podcast. Welcome back, Saps. Good to be back, Mel. How's it going? Awesome. Just had ourselves a little psychology session. I feel liberated, and I'm not even an athlete. No, it was... You must feel amazing. (laughs) It was just really helpful. I mean... Sometimes... Before we get into it, let let us tell you all who we had. Okay, wait. We had a sports psychologist, uh, Teresa Bianco, who was a teacher, who is a teacher at Concordia University. She was my uh, teacher in psychology twice when I was doing my bachelor's degree. Uh, She was amazing. Honestly, like uh, like we, like I said, we just feel liberated. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I learned a lot. I was as I was trying to say, <laughs> just straight. You got right into I it. And I was like, no one's gonna know what you're talking. I about. know. <laughs> but um, no, what I was gonna say is that sometimes you just need somebody else telling you the advice that you've been thinking about in your head for it to sink in. Yeah, we never. They always say you should listen to yourself. You know, when your friends go like, oh, you give such great advice, like. Hope you follow it. I'm like, nope. Yeah, some reason you I'm can't really follow good at your... giving it to someone else. <laughs> yeah, but when I say it to myself, I'm like, that's a load of crap. Can't follow your own advice. <laughs> no, but honestly, it was really great conversation with uh, Dr. Bianco. Learned a lot, and she had mentioned it. I mean, if you ask anybody how much mental game plays out in a sport or in a performance, everyone's gonna say more than fifty percent. But then how much effort do you put into that mental game? We we put zero percent almost. We like people only seek sort of psychological help when things are going Mm -hmm. poorly, it seems, or post injury. Yeah. Um, So I think this is definitely a great conversation everyone should listen to. And, you know, I think I'm going to actively pursue, you know, and 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 practice that mental edge as uh, she was describing. I mean, Mm -hmm. it plays such an important part in our game. Why aren't we putting that much time and effort into preparing for performance mentally? Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, as much as she specializes in sports psychology and it's for athletes, a lot of what she said resonated with me. And I think if I can if I can relate to it and I haven't played sports in God knows how long, I think other people can relate to it, too, because at the end of the day, it's just about being mentally strong and mentally healthy. For sure. It's just being resilient and controlling what you can control and being okay with what you can't control exactly enjoy so i'm uh, Teresa bianco and i'm a psychology professor at concordia university and my area of specialty is sports psychology well Teresa, thank you so much for joining us in studio today uh sports psychology is a topic that mel and i that was one of the first things we wanted to address when we came up with the idea for the podcast because it's it's such an important part of an athlete's health and the first person I thought it was you. Fantastic. Well, <laughs> yeah. I'm glad to be here to talk yeah, about it. Yeah, and with we're you. so happy to have you. And uh, I think this will be the third time you'll be teaching me in my life. I had you for uh, sports psychology and health psychology at Concordia University. Um, so before we get into you know what you do, uh, I wanna I wanna know why you do it. How come you decided to become a sports psychologist? All right. So um, my first love was psychology. And uh, interestingly enough, I don't have a sporting background, but I was always interested in uh, people that 
were interested in doing sports and they're just so dedicated. Uh, the perseverance was something that, that I found really impressive. So I wanted to just understand a little bit more about what it takes to be an athlete and especially a top athlete. So, uh, you know, a lot of times we think of the, the physical demands, but we forget about the psychological demands and, and all of that pressure that athletes have to face on a daily basis and be able to perform under pressure, be able to deal with, um, with losses and recover from those losses and be resilient. And sometimes, you know, they have to do that in the moment. Uh, so these are all things that I found really impressive. And I just wanted to understand a little bit more about it. It's amazing. Yeah, it's, I mean, as an athlete, like, I don't really think about what makes me different than others, but I've never taken a sports psych class or really spoken with a psychologist. But I mean, just hearing what you've said, I definitely can resonate with some of it. I mean, you do a bad play in hockey, you just have to snap out of it and move on. And, you know, just being around athletes and hearing their stories, especially when they bounce back from injuries or they work an entire year for like one event. I have a a friend who does CrossFit and just works an entire year just for like the CrossFit games. And, you know, if if you wake up that day and you have the flu and you underperform, it it can be devastating because you've worked your entire year for that event. But it's quite amazing. So I had a couple questions here. Um, How does your approach to sort of helping an athlete differ when they're an individual athlete or maybe in a team environment? Do you have a different approach to dealing with those individuals? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, there are some some things that are common in terms of how I will work with athletes. And uh, I always have to take the environment in which they're working into consideration, right? So there's going to be a major difference between working with an athlete who's in an individual sport as opposed to someone who's in a team sport. So an individual sport athlete um, has total control over their own performance. And uh, they're completely responsible for the outcome. Whereas with a team athlete, it's a combined effort. So even though you as an individual can perform to your best, if that is not being repeated across the entire team, you can come away feeling very frustrated that not everyone else uh, was able to pull it off. so, so there, there are different dynamics to take into account. Individual team athlete doesn't have to worry about getting along with his or her teammates. <laughs> Whereas a team athlete, uh, you know, the team dynamics play a huge role in the performance itself, but also the experience you have being in that sport and playing on that particular team. So those are things that I have to take into account when I'm working with an athlete. Uh, in terms of what is common is my, my approach will be the same in the sense that I am trying to get the athlete to recognize what their individual recipe for success is because it'll vary from one person to another and what works well for one athlete will not necessarily work well for, for another. So my job is uh, to help the athlete look very closely and systematically at what they do, 
when they do it, how they do it, who they do it with, and how that impacts their performance. So what we'll do is we'll compare a really good performance to really bad performance so that we get a nice contrast between the two and then we can try to pick away at okay what worked really well and what what gets in the way and we want to eliminate those things that that get in the way so so that approach will be the same for the individual and the team athlete and the other thing that will be the same as well is the focus on what is within your control mm. so even though your uh, in a team environment and there's a lot of interdependence in terms of the performance there are still things that are within your control and that's what we focus on um, when working with team athletes when you say you sort of systematically look at mm -hmm. and compare a good performance and a bad performance is this like everything that has led up to that performance like I play hockey right so let's yep. say I had a bad game Sometimes it's it's there's so many variables in this, yeah. such a dynamic sport. It, it's not like a I think figure skating where it's like okay you know everything you're about to do for that performance. So would you look more for myself, let's say, at how I prepared for the game or how I responded to certain plays within the game? Would be all of the above. So I would start uh, by asking you to reflect back on what you were doing even the day before the event. What's your preparation? Did you sleep well? Uh, did you eat well? Uh, what was your exercise routine? What's your warm-up routine? What do you, how did you travel to the event? Was that stressful in the sense that, you know, you were running late and you had to organize travel yourself? Or was it something you didn't need to worry about? So we'll go through all of those elements. Uh, what happens once you get to the event? Uh, who, who do you interact with? Are you having positive interactions with people? Are, are people stressing you out in terms of what they're saying to you before the event? Um, what are your interactions like with your teammates before stepping onto the ice? What's your interaction with your coach like before you step on onto the ice so we'll we'll take we'll break it down systematically like that and then as you say it's also important to look at what's happening during play so how do you react when something doesn't go the way you expect it to are you getting upset are you getting frustrated are you able to just shake it off and think to the next play so these these are all the elements we would go through and even your reaction afterwards is something that uh, we would examine together also because that is all part of the package yeah I think it it seems like it all stems down from sort of em emotional resilience for a lot of it um, so I have some teammates that have very uh, ritual mm -hmm. I don't know um, I guess tendencies before play yeah. um, I don't really I don't know if it works for me or not, but like, would you, in your like sort of professional opinion, do you have you find in the past that having the same routine before performance is beneficial? So uh, you got to be careful with that because you don't want to wander into the realm of superstition, right? So that 
(laughs) if for some reason you can't uh, engage in your typical routine that you're then thinking, oh my goodness, this game's going to be a write-off. I I couldn't find my sock or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) So you don't want that to happen. It's good to have an idea of what it is that works for you and then have some flexibility with that, right? So sometimes... Uh, an athlete will have a playlist that they like to listen to before they go out uh, to perform. What happens if they've forgotten their music? What else can they do in order to get themselves in that headspace? So you always want to have a plan B, a backup plan for those aspects of your preparation that uh, may or may not be available to you at the time. And again, to not become too superstitious about it and, you know, give more control to the routine than to yourself. At the end of the day, you're the one who's in charge. True. Yeah. Not the sock. <laughs> exactly. The sock. You repeat that to yourself before every game. I'll, get, I'll shoot you a text right before every game too. It's okay, Mel. It's not the sock. It's you. It's all you. No, because I, I feel like I've purposely never wanted to fall into a routine yeah. exactly mm-hmm. for that reason. I mean, even in college, it's... You know, playing it professionally now is different because we actually move around a lot more. Yeah. We're in college, you know, I've been in the same locker room in the same seat for four years. I've watched some of my teammates fall into like extreme like tendencies before games and routines that I inadvertently fall into them because I'm like part of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which yeah. is fine with me because I'm like, okay, this is what they need. But like I've purposely like tried to stand in different spots when I'm taping my sticks because... I don't want to be reliant on sort of thinking that I need to do these these particular sequences before, you know, having a good game. Yeah, and you raise a good point. It's, it's really a question of self-awareness. And what's most important is to be aware of the things that get in the way of your performance, right? So... Yes, it's nice to have a routine and because, you know, if if I go through these motions, I'm going to be in a good state of mind. But at the same time, you want to be sure to eliminate the things that get in the way, right? So sometimes, like parents, for example, they want to be supportive, but sometimes they they don't do a really good job of doing that. And, And it's because, you know, some of the blame rests on the athlete who hasn't told his or her mom or dad what it is they need from them at the game. So you need to have that conversation and say, look, I know you're there because you want to support me and you love me. This is what I need you to do when we're at the game. Like, just do not talk to me at all if that's what works for you. And then, you know, we'll catch up after the game. And if your parents know that ahead of time, they're going to be like, oh, absolutely, we get it. But if they don't know that, they may actually be, you know, trying to get your attention beforehand. And and that's something that's a distraction for you. So identifying those things that are distractions is really important because that's what you want to try to eliminate. That's really interesting. Um, One of the things that I know is that obviously there's, when you think of psychology and therapy, often you think, it's one-on-one um, and there is obviously group therapy exists too. I'm wondering in a team setting, does that ever occur where there's maybe a group session instead of just addressing one athlete in the team concept and the team context? Because we were talking about how it, the approaches differ because you there are different responsibilities and whatnot, but does that ever happen, uh, you know, in a, in a sports team setting? Yeah. So, uh, it it depends on 
um, who has asked you to work with the Mm. team. It can happen that you have an individual athlete who's playing on a team that comes to see you and wants to work with you on on, uh, one-on-one. And then again, it can happen that a coach invites you to work with a team, uh, which would be more beneficial. Mm -hmm. And in that case, you can combine group sessions with individual sessions. So in the group sessions, what you would focus on are identifying common objectives, common goals, and uh, getting each member of the team to recognize what each individual brings to the performance. Why is this person necessary to our team? What would our team be like if this person wasn't here? Um, and it, it's, it's a good exercise to get into because sometimes uh, personality differences can get in the way, right? And there's a misconception that everyone needs to be friends in order to work well together as a team. And it's not necessarily so. What you want is for the athletes to have mutual respect for what each person is bringing to that team. So you want to strip that emotionality out of it. Not that it's not not important to have, but you want to strip that emotionality out of it so you can focus on the mechanical aspects, the technical aspects. And, and that really helps highlight why everyone is necessary. Uh, and taking the opportunity to acknowledge that in one another is, is a really helpful exercise. And then we can add the layer of the emotionality on top of that. Uh, now, how can we work towards getting people to appreciate each other more if that indeed is a problem? Mm-hmm. So that, those are all things we can work on uh, at a team level doing uh, team exercises, having a team write a mission statement, for example. And you can even break the team down into individual subunits, right, depending on whether they're offense or defense, for example. And they they would do uh, the same exercise as well. So there might be different goals within each individual subunit, but then there will be common goals across the entire team. Mm -hmm. So that's a good exercise in and of itself. But at the same time, you might still need to work with some athletes individually to address how they can gain a better sense of control over their own individual performance within a team Mm -hmm. setting. I find that really interesting because, I mean, obviously I'm I'm not an athlete, but when I used to play team sports, emotionality is is one of those things that I feel like was very important to me Mm -hmm. because I always thought my best performances was when I was playing with friends because I didn't have to think about like oh like are we you know are we on the same plane like we always it was it was fine we had that respect but then when it was when I was playing with girls who I didn't know so well and you know we didn't talk so much it was kind of like okay well what's going on here and I'm someone I get in my head quite a bit so I feel like that's really interesting that you bring that up because I feel like that's an important part but Mm -hmm. no one really talks about it but I like the distinction between emotionality and also just mutual respect yeah yeah. And you're not alone in that. There, there's a number of, of uh, team athletes that I've worked with who, when I put it to them that way, they're like, oh, 
you mean we don't need to always get along yeah. for it to work? It's like, no, yeah. <laughs> you don't. If you have that, that's great. Mm-hmm. But it's not a necessary ingredient. And once they they realize that, it actually takes some pressure off of them and they relax a bit and, and focus more on the job that needs to get done. Yeah, and efficiently yeah. communicating with everyone and making sure everyone's on the same page. A bit like in any other job, I guess, if you're working in a team you're not friends with all your coworkers, but you're all dedicated to get that project done. So <laughs> exactly. Like and if someone says something to you, yeah. rather than taking it personally, you can say to yourself, okay, they're telling me this because this is what needs to, mm-hmm. what I need to do to get the job done. Yeah. This is, you know, this is what this is all about. It's not because they think I'm incapable or incompetent. We all have an agreement that, you know, when we speak to each other in this manner, mm-hmm. it's because we're, we're just communicating information that's necessary to get the job done. Yeah. I mean, I think like just from experience, it, it always comes down to communications. I've been on many different teams now with you know a cycle of new players and some years go better than others but um at my university we had a basically a professional come in to help us learn how to communicate with Mm -hmm. each other because as you mentioned everyone has different personalities and need different different feedback and you know delivered in a different way and I think that's so important but how, how from like a psychological point like how do you cater communication to each individual or how would you communicate to a team, you know, that you can't yell at everyone or some some people you just you got to let it slip. You can't. I don't know. Yeah. I give the example like I had a, a a teammate who always wanted feedback and it annoyed me, to be honest. Right. I was just kind of <laughs> like, what? it was fine. Like nothing bad happened. And then finally, like it clicked after this session that oh my god if that's all she needs then that's cost nothing to me to be like yep that was good yeah. you know what I mean so I yeah. how how do, how would you discuss communication with a team and cater sort of yeah that? so so it's a balancing act isn't it, it it's finding that middle ground between uh, what the individual needs and what is possible for the person delivering the message so a classic example is is a coach a, a team uh, coach has multiple personalities that he or she has to oversee. And, you know, it would really be cumbersome for that coach to have to cater to each individual and adjust the message so that, oh, well, this person, I can, (laughs) you know, say this straightforwardly. This person, I have to sugarcoat it a little bit. This person, I have to, you know, first say something positive, then say what the message is. That that can get cumbersome, can get in the way, right? Uh, So... What's important in the communication is that everyone has a mutual understanding that whatever message is coming your way should be focused on the technical aspects of the play uh, or, you know, whatever is required rather than talking about someone's personality, right? Uh, so there, and, and this is a, a tone that the coach can set for the team. Uh, there's, you know, we're not going to, um, there's to be no name calling. Uh, you're, you're not going to um, single somebody out in front of others and embarrass them. Uh, this is something that just will not be allowed on our team. So if, so if there's 
you know, this sort of contract that's Some made. Like guidelines. Yeah, you know, made ahead of time. Then uh, there's that mutual understanding. And the other thing I say to athletes is the ones who are on the receiving end of the messages, I tell them, you know, sometimes things come your way in ugly packages, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> <Yeah>. so, you know, when sometimes you get a gift and it's got this beautiful wrapping and a ribbon <laughs> and then you've got other friends that just wrap it in newspaper because that's all they had lying around. <laughs> that's me. <laughs> and yeah, and the scotch tape is all slapstick, you know. <laughs> it doesn't matter. What matters is inside. And, okay. and so this is what I tell the athletes is that, you know, sometimes a message will come to you and it, it's just wrapped in all sorts of stuff that you don't want. You have the opportunity to filter that message and just take away from it that bit of information that you need that will help you improve on your performance and, and just discard the rest. So you have control over that, over how you receive the message and how you react to the message. So that, that's where that balancing act is because you can't always control how the other person's going to send the message to you, but you can control what you decide to do with the message once it comes your way. That's actually extremely helpful. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm glad. On. I can the, apply the to all aspects of life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we wanted to ask you was, um, you know, when you're working with an athlete long term, for example, what is your plan of action in the sense that how much do you really plan out and like specifically say, OK, this week we're going to do X next week we're going to do Y. You know, is there you know, do you plan for a very long time or, you know, do you kind of just plan out the first little bit and then see how it goes with that individual. Yeah, so uh, doing the work I do requires a lot of flexibility and a lot of creativity. I have to adapt to the person I'm working with. Uh, you know, this is not my agenda, it's this person's agenda, and they are the ones that are always uh, guiding the direction we're going to go in. Um, even if, if I can see that a person should be doing something different than what they have in mind, it's not my job to put them off that course. They have to discover that on their own. So I'm there to guide the person and provide resources uh, to help them achieve whatever objective they want. So when I start working with an athlete, we try to figure out what is the long-term goal for this person, right? You want to have an idea of what the final destination is. And then we, we backtrack from there and determine, uh, okay, so what needs to be done to get us to that point? So let's say it's, uh, you know, a championship that's coming up in a year's time. So I want to be sure I'm in top form to be able to perform in this championship. Okay, great. We have a, a goal in mind. What are all of the steps you need to get through uh, in order to be able to qualify to participate in those championships? Well, we need to win this game. We need to place uh, here, et cetera, et cetera. So we work all of that out. And then we look at um, what the person is currently doing in order to be able to meet these objectives. So to be ready for that qualifying event that's three months from now or six months from now before we even get to thinking about the championships. So we'll, we'll set up a timeline that way to identify those milestones along the way. 
And then uh, we'll do a bit of a diagnosis, if you like, of what are the immediate obstacles the person is encountering. So, you know, there may be a range of issues, but what is it right now that is getting in the way for you? And let's tackle it one thing at a time, because the last thing I want to do is overwhelm an athlete with a bunch of things, right? Oh, you got to work on this, 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 that. <laughs> That'd be really discouraging. <laughs> and we, we certainly want to have small successes along the way to, to build a confidence in, in, the, in the program, right? Just, just like you build confidence in the physical training program, we want to build confidence in the psychological training program. Uh, so it really is tailored to that individual and what they currently not only feel the need to work on, but feel ready to work on as well. That's really important mm-hmm. also. I know that, you know, when an athlete, for example, gets injured, one of the things is, you know, it's really hard to kind of see the the end of the finish line, especially if it's a serious injury. And in this in this scenario, for example, you know, it could be just someone who wants to make it to that championship game. But how you know, how do you maybe not convince them is the right word, but how do you kind of show them like you're on the right path? Like it's not clear right now maybe but you know it's you're you're heading in the right direction how do you kind of keep them uh, I guess motivated to keep going so you know injury injury is a tough one no Mm -hmm. question right uh it's it's a devastating event for an athlete one that really gets in the way of of their plans and raises a lot of doubts about the future as well Uh, a lot of concerns about whether they will be able to come back and perform to pre-injury levels or even surpass pre-injury levels. Uh, So there's a lot of very realistic concerns there, uh, not to mention just the, the emotional upheaval of, you know, this major disappointment. Uh, it's really important with the case of injury to have a multidisciplinary approach. And even an interdisciplinary approach would be fantastic. So the coach, the sports psychologist, and the sport medicine professional working together. Uh, Because, you know, if I want to encourage the athlete to be positive about the future, there's there has to be a future there for them in the yeah. sport, right? Yeah. It has to be realistic. I can't just say, "Oh, don't worry, things will get better." We have to be. We have to have some concrete evidence that that is a possibility. And so that reassurance comes from the sport medicine mm-hmm. professional who has the knowledge, the medical knowledge, uh, who has a good idea of what the reasonable timeline is, right? So, for example. Uh, an athlete who has uh, an ACL rupture and needs a knee reconstruction, for example. We know they're out minimum six months. So we know that. Uh, But the good news is that it is possible that after the reconstruction, the knee is actually stronger than it was beforehand. Now, in order for an athlete to believe that, they need to hear it from an yeah. orthopedic yeah. surgeon, right? <laughs> right? Fair. Right? So, so that's why it's important to have that person on the team. You also want the coach in the team because 
the coach is the person who has a lot of control over the athlete's future, whether, you know, they, they get to play or what position they get to play when they come back or if they even have a position when they come back. So, you know, th- these again are concerns that the athlete will have. So it's really important for the coach to be involved in the process so that he or she can reassure the athlete that they have the coach's support that uh, there will be uh, a place for them when they come back and also to encourage the athlete to remain involved as much as possible with the sport during recovery so it isn't a case of go away get better and only come back when you're ready to play it's like no we're going to accompany you on this journey uh, the, when it's possible for you to start doing some training with us, you come back. We're going to adapt a training to what you're capable of doing and really integrating, keeping the athlete uh, as a member of the team and avoiding that isolation that can readily happen with, with injuries. And the sports psychologist is the person who can... Um, coordinate that if you like and also help the athlete with setting realistic goals during the uh, the recovery period the, re- the rehabilitation period and also help the athlete focus on skills that they can develop while they are not playing um, and these might be uh, you know strategic skills Uh, or you could work on developing another body part that maybe gets neglected all the time Mm -hmm. because you're so focused on uh, something else. So, for example, if it's a knee reconstruction and you're recovering from that, maybe you can do some upper body work, right? So there there are things you can do that will allow you to not feel like you are falling behind the rest of the pack and you'll never be able to catch up. Um, And that's what... That's why I'm recommending this uh, interdisciplinary approach. It works brilliantly. Interesting. Um, I guess this brought up sort of an interesting thought in my head. Mm-hmm. You said that it's important to like control what you can control. And obviously you can't really control injury. And like you said, you know, it's important for coaches and whoever is part of that sport to say that they are going to have a spot when they're welcomed back. How do you deal with an athlete? Because I always have this conversation with friends, you know, sometimes it's nice to be a sprinter because it's clear you should be on the team. You're faster than everyone else. Right. When you're in a sport or, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, like a, a figure skating team and it's it's not as clear as which team should be part of, let's say, a national program yeah. or a collegiate program. How do you help athletes navigate that when you know, they thought they performed at the best they performed, you know, they got cut from a team or whatnot. It's devastating. They don't really see why they aren't getting the feedback from coaching. How do you help an athlete navigate that? Because they they did do everything they could control, but it wasn't enough, you Mm -hmm. know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, even in an injury situation, in a rehabilitation situation, there's still a lot of things that are within your control. So that's something that I would work uh, on with the athlete is helping that person recognize that okay you, you didn't control this happening to your body but you have a lot of control over your adherence to your rehabilitation program uh, you have control over uh, working on your mental game 
you can watch um, video footage and really get to learn the sport from an outside perspective. And that's actually a very useful skill. You can stand on the sidelines beside your coach and listen to your coach when he or she is coaching other athletes and really see what the coach is seeing, right? So sometimes you're out on a field or on the ice, your coach is yelling stuff to you and you're like, what's he talking about? Or what is she talking about? But now you're standing beside them and you're like, okay, I finally I get it. it. Yeah. I finally see what, what, what he or she means when they, when they say that. So, so there are things that are within your control. Now, certainly uh, you can't control what your position is going to be, whether you'll, you'll get a lot of play time. Uh, and these are things that we work together on coming to terms with, right? And that, that's part of uh, being a team athlete is, is recognizing that your coach has his or her objective. And they need to select players to reach that objective. So again, it's nothing personal, uh, but this person has a job to do. And if, if you factor into that, great. But if you don't, that's okay as well, right? So, so the game is bigger than you, than you are. And that's something that team, ath- uh, team um, athletes need to recognize, that it's always bigger than them. Otherwise, you really should be in an individual sport if you want it to be <laughs> sure. all about you, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, that doesn't mean it's easy to accept, it, and it doesn't mean that you're not entitled to being disappointed about it. Absolutely. Uh, my job is not to make you feel something different. Uh, it's just to help you put things into perspective and help you come to terms with whatever it is that you are feeling. But, uh, you know, every athlete has full permission to, to feel angry, upset, um, you know, joyful, whatever the range of emotions is, um, I want them to embrace that and recognize it and then try to find a way to move on from it. Yeah. I think just saying, I think that's what I like about sports is that you can experience all those range of, yeah, of emotions. And I think it's, I was having this conversation with a friend. I think it's, it's healthy because yeah. like not a lot of adults really play sports other than recreationally. Mm-hmm. Where I was like, I may be the only like 26 year old of like my friends that still play competitively and I can, I can like be super happy and cry in the same day. And I don't yeah. know, I think it's healthy. I still do that. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but it can happen in a blink yeah. of an eye. <laughs> you're alive. It makes you feel alive. I know, right? I know. It's yeah. really great. <laughs> Uh, you you mentioned obviously the multi or interdisciplinary mm-hmm. approach when it comes to dealing with athletes. Um, are there any conflicts that could arise when you involve more people in in that context? Because obviously you could have the sports medicine uh, individual saying one thing, and then you might not agree with it, or or the coach might not agree. So in a way, there's that dynamic that needs yeah. to be managed as well. So how do you approach that? Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that uh, people need to agree to so all the members of the team need to put their egos aside and agree to a common objective just like the individual athletes agree to the common objective of you know the team winning uh, the the professionals need to do the same thing so the sports psychologist the sport medicine doctor the coach we're all here because we want to do what's best for this athlete 
and uh, I'm not going to meddle in your medicine. You're not going to meddle in my coaching, <laughs> etc. Yeah. Right? Um, and and I think it's really important for coaches to be part of that process because sometimes they may not quite understand what the limitations are on the athlete and if it's up to the athlete to say oh coach I'm not ready to play yet that's putting a lot of pressure on the athlete number one uh, and it's all sometimes the coach may uh, may be tempted to think that the athlete is saying that just to get out of doing something uh, they may feel that they still need to push them just like they do during training. And, you know, maybe that's what they typically do with this athlete uh, when they're running drills. But you don't want to do that with an injury because then you can cause the athlete to have further injury or there might be a setback in the recovery. So if the coach is part of that conversation, he or she will have a better idea of, okay, you know, where's my wiggle room here with this athlete? And there's an understanding that, you know, if the athlete tells me they can't play, they can't, and I won't play the athlete. Uh, Or if this particular drill needs to be modified somehow, then the sport medicine professional, it could be the surgeon, you know, was involved in the beginning, but then afterwards could be the athletic trainer who's part of the team. So then uh, the coach and the athletic trainer work together um, to develop exercises that are suited to, to the athlete. And the coach, again, needs to be willing to listen to what the athletic trainer says, right? So the athletic trainer is the person who will advocate for the athlete and uh, say, no, this is too much, or yes, that sounds like a good idea. Athletes should be able to do this. Do, do these conversations basically happen almost you know, weekly? Like they, they must be happening often for it to work. Yeah, so th- it would depend on the type of injury mm-hmm. we're talking about and also the stage of recovery that the athlete mm-hmm. is at. So, um, you know, in the early stages, uh, post-surgery, for example, there wouldn't be that much that the athlete could do in terms of uh, the typical drills that take place in a training uh, environment. But maybe a couple of months down the road, yes, there would be more frequent interaction. There should be interaction constantly, Mm -hmm. but the frequency of it will depend on uh, where the athlete is in terms of recovery. Now, assuming medical professionals and staff all agree that an athlete is physically capable, should be at 100%, but that individual feels like they're underperforming still, um, is it something like you would communicate, like, okay, everyone agrees you're, like, good to go, let's see why we're not back to where we were or moving forward? Yeah, so just because an athlete is physically ready doesn't mean they're psychologically ready. And sometimes those two things align nicely, and sometimes there's a huge gap, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and that's why the sports psychologist is part of that team. And, um, you know, the return to play is, is yet another psychological hurdle for the athletes. So, okay, I've been doing a rehab in a very controlled environment, but now I have to go back into the environment where there's a lot of things that are unpredictable, uh, 
it's the same environment where the injury occurred. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm going to tense up when I'm finding myself in a position similar to when that injury happened. Uh, maybe I won't push as hard now because I don't want to re-injure myself. So the, these are all very uh, understandable reactions for an athlete to have in uh, the return to sport. And this is something that we would work on um as a sports psychologist would work on this with the athlete just talking about what those concerns are and then what we can do to alleviate those concerns so an example of something you can do to alleviate those concerns is just take baby steps as you re-enter right so slowly it's it's like you're testing the waters again Mm -hmm. right and so slowly dipping a toe in instead of just diving right in and that if you have the support of the coach in that process, it's even better. And what we want is for the athlete to get to have some autonomy over what they're doing. So some control mm-hmm. over uh, being able to say, yeah, this is good or no, this is too far. And the other thing also is sometimes the athlete really wants to go out there and prove themselves. And we need to rein them back in. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes the athlete could be his or her worst enemy in that that situation. So, uh, you know, and and again, that's where the coach can say, no, I'm only going to allow you to do this now. Um, But yeah, this is definitely something we would work on together. Uh, acknowledging that these fears are reasonable and let, let's come up with a plan to manage or mitigate those fears. Yeah, because I think it's always fear that sort of prevents. And I think of people who do like what I consider a more extreme sport, like mm-hmm. uh, s- ski cross or I don't know, any of the ski jumping things and their bodies wrecked after. Yeah. And I don't know how they go back, but they do. But mm-hmm. I guess it's their sport that they love. I don't know. Well, I even think, in, you know, sometimes maybe this is just the like the viewer's perspective. But for example, if you're watching a hockey game on TV, like in the NHL, if you have a guy who came back from injury, but, you know, he was known to play physically and he got injured because he was playing physically because he was checking too hard or yeah. whatever. I feel like you sometimes with some players, you could see, OK, they're a little bit more yeah. hesitant to do that. And so I feel like in that sense, it might be also like a mental thing, too, where they're like there's that fear of yeah absolutely they, there, there will be that apprehension mm-hmm. I think it's normal yeah. right and it's it's actually a healthy thing to have that apprehension and you need to test test the body part if you like and and realize that oh okay it's it's working again I, I can push a little bit harder yeah. and and just slowly build up to it yeah well, I guess it's it's somewhat primal, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Don't go back to the area where you got hurt. <laughs> yeah. Try not to get hurt again. Does, um, I mean, do, does, do most teams now have a sports psychologist? Because my, you know, I think about it, I mean, every team has a coach, you know. Yeah. Uh, every team has trainers and a host of other people who are, you know, that's a given. Yeah. But uh, it seems that's there are more and more sports psychologists working with teams and that are mm-hmm. with teams like all year round. Is yeah. it becoming more of a thing for a sports psychologists to be on staff? Yeah. So, uh, you know, sports psychology used to be thought of as icing on the cake, 
right? And all the other aspects that you were talking about were the main ingredients. So having coaching staff, having a physiotherapist or athletic trainer, these were all considered to be essential to performance. And the sports psychologist was, well, you know, if we have a little bit of money left over, maybe we'll hire a sports psychologist and have the person come in, give a pep talk before a game, and that should do it. Uh, but that, you know, of course, that that's not essential. And interestingly, if if I ask an athlete or a coach, what percentage of your game would you say is mental? It will always be more than 50%. And it's usually around 70% or higher, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so then my follow up question is, and how much time do you spend on the mental game? Yeah. <laughs> 10%. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It won't be more than 50%, mm-hmm. 70%, yeah. or 80%. Uh, and, and I think sports psychology has done a very good job uh, in terms of uh, marketing itself and bringing awareness uh, to people in the sports community of how important it is to include a sports psychologist as part of the team precisely for that reason you're you know you're going out on the field you're not parking your brain somewhere it's coming out (laughs) there with you right your emotions are coming out there with you your doubts your fears your concerns it's it's all part of the package so we need to make sure that's managed Um, and more and more professional teams in particular are now hiring sports psychologists full-time Uh, I think the Blue Jays has one, or there was recently a call for one. So we're seeing that a lot in professional sports. I'd like to see a lot more of it in university sports Mm -hmm. as well. Um, Olympic sports teams usually have sports psychologists working with them. But I think the earlier on we tackle this, the the better off the athlete is, right? Uh, And it's it's not just a one-off doing a pep talk thing that that's not going to help an athlete puts months and months of physical training in to get ready for an event the same has to happen with the mental training and the earlier you start the more normal it'll be seen too because obviously in psychology just in general there's always that stigma of oh it's a bad thing oh it means that you know there's something wrong with you but it's just a part of you it's it's not a bad thing it's just it's life well what typically happens is you know a coach sees an athlete struggling says you need to go see the sports psychologist yeah (laughs) it's only in retrospect that i think like people seek help like okay i'm not playing well let's find out instead of actively sort of i don't know getting ready every game and not getting to the point where you're like okay i need yeah, yeah. I, need well, I think it's hard to also check in with yourself too. like, OK, like, do I is it is it a physical thing or is it, you know, is there something else going on that Carey Price said it? It's always mental. It's always, <laughs> well, if Carey Price said it. <laughs> but, you know, I look at it as trying to get the edge. Right. So uh, if there's a new, you know, a new shoe that comes out an athlete has no problem going to buy that new piece of equipment that is supposed to you know give you an edge somehow athletes embrace that mm-hmm. and you know go see a, a physiotherapist go see a strength trainer see a nutritionist there's no problem with that there's no stigma attached to it mm-hmm. like you said but with the sports psychologist the perception is oh i have to go there cuz there's something wrong with me and the way i look at it is 
wow, I'm going to go see this person to see if they can give me some sort of edge so that I can be in better control of my mental game. What can I do to tweak my mental game to get it to a place where I can do even more Mm -hmm. when I'm performing? I mean, for sure, because especially at top level, there's not that much setting you apart between individuals. So, you know, seeking that edge is definitely something every competitive athlete wants. I think, like, sort of where psychology gets forgotten is, because I do it too, like, when I'm in play, like, I'm playing my sport, I always describe it as I'm not thinking, I'm just doing it. So I feel like it gets forgotten because my individual perception of it is that I'm not actually doing anything mental because it's just like flowing out of me you know what I mean yeah I think so I think it gets forgotten but we don't realize that it's the prep beforehand like I don't realize I'm using my quads when I'm skating but I have prepared for months doing squats for that game so I think it's just and then you realize it right after (laughs) yeah (laughs) when they're burning yeah Yeah. (laughs) like I need these no but I think that's where it sort of gets lost is that we don't think we need it because we don't realize how much we're using our mental game in play and and you know what I want to achieve with an athlete is precisely what you're describing to be out there and not having to think about it right where it just becomes automatic and it flows and that's what allows you to enjoy the game and and perform to the best of your abilities because if you're out there thinking okay what do I do now oh this just happened how am I supposed to process this those are all distractions Every, you know, millisecond that you spend thinking about something like that is a millisecond of a lost opportunity for you and an advantage for your opponent. So I don't want you to be out there analyzing yourself (laughs) as you're playing your sport. Uh, And that's why we do the reflection beforehand and afterwards and uh, practice things so that so that these thought patterns become automatic and are not a hindrance to you when you're out performing. For sure. Um, I guess this brings up an interesting question. So like team sports oftentimes are very reactive sports. Mm -hmm. Um, How would this be different? thinking in play if for like a gymnast who's performing a routine do you find those individuals you'll give them time okay you could think of every move as you're doing it because it's not reactive I'm not sure if I'm both yeah I, I know what you're saying because they're more in control of what's happening yeah. in in the situation they know what exactly is yeah. coming next whereas yeah. in uh, hockey for, I don't know what's coming next I could have an idea of what might happen but you know my pass might get intercepted or yeah. whatnot So, you know, there would be different things that you would focus on uh, in in each of those two scenarios. So uh, in a reactive situation like you're describing in in hockey, uh, what we want to work on is your alertness, right? And being able to react to something when it comes your way and, and not not being sluggish in your reaction time. So how do we make sure that that you're switched on and ready for when the action comes your way. Like um, a goalie, for example. Uh, With that position, the person has a certain level of alertness needed while they're watching play on the other side of the ice. But then as it starts coming towards them onto their side of the ice, they need to ramp that up, right? Uh, So 
this is what we would work on with the goalie. So how do we control that so that you're not ramped up the whole time and then, you know, your brain just gets tired and then when it counts, <laughs> you don't got it anymore. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and with a gymnast or even a figure skater, for example, uh, you know, what they're focusing on is, is the routine and what's coming up next. So they have a series of moves that uh, they need to be able to execute. So, so what they're focusing on will, will be different, uh, but being able to manage that in accordance with the demands of the situation uh, would be similar for both athletes I feel like you know in a team sport like you were saying it's it's a lot more reactive you don't know what's going to happen so for example if a pass gets intercepted or if you fall if you just fall I mean you'll get right back up and you'll just keep going but for a sport that's so much more focused on routine yeah what happens when you fall because you're technically not supposed to fall you're supposed to do that flip yeah so it's I feel like that's the moment where the athlete needs to be able to pick themselves right back up again and just keep going and that must be really difficult absolutely right and and you can't get ahead of yourself and start thinking oh no that's it I've just lost the gold medal opportunity or you know I've lost this amount of points it's all over with you can't do that you have to stay in the moment and really you know what you're performing is is a chain or a sequence of uh, different tricks and moves but you have to think of them as being individual from one another in the sense that you know if one fails it doesn't necessarily mean that the subsequent ones will fail so it's like dominoes but yeah. having them spaced far enough <laughs> apart so, you know having so them, that they don't knock the exactly rest of them. so that if one falls down it doesn't call cause all the others to fall down as well exactly so practically like what should an athlete do for instance they're a figure skater they wipe out like in that moment what what is like a coping I guess technique you would tell an individual or is it all like retrospect you're like okay next time don't think about it so much yeah so what we would do is plan for that ahead of time right so so your your best defense is to be prepared for things and uh this is one of the things that a sports psychologist would work on with an athlete. So you know when I was describing when it works well versus when it doesn't work well. So tell me what are the things that can throw you off your game. So for example, a gymnast might say, well, you know, when I fall off the bar, that's really hard to recover from mentally. We would we would work on that. And how we would do that is I would ask the athlete, okay, so tell me what runs through your mind when that occurs. What's your immediate thought? And the athlete might say, oh, shit, it's all over with. And so we would work on then, well, what can you say to yourself instead that would allow you to still feel in control of the situation that you would be able to recover from that? I would ask the athlete, has anyone ever won an event when they've fallen? Mm-hmm. And the answer most of the times is yes, Yes, right? So it's possible. It's possible to recover from that. Okay, good. So that's something we want to hold on to. And what what is a, a key word or a key phrase that is meaningful to you that you can use to get yourself to focus on the next move? 
And, you know, it might be something very simple, like saying, okay, next, right? So now I'm just focused on the next thing I need to do. I don't have time to think about this, about what just happened. We're going to deal with that afterwards. Yeah, later. But, but right now, exactly, right? <laughs> the clock is still ticking. You yeah. still have a job to do. So, you know, if you've given up at that moment, you might as well save yourself some pain and energy and just walk off <laughs> walk <laughs> yeah, off the mat right, right? <laughs> so if I ask an athlete would you consider doing that would you just walk off the mat they're gonna be like well, no no way I'm not gonna do that and, and so it's <laughs> yeah. like okay well then if you're there yeah. you better be do there a hundred percent right and and so we we have a little bit of a chuckle about that but it, it's true you don't want to be defeated part way through mentally or sometimes even be defeated beforehand. So for example, I, I work a lot with uh, wrestlers and you know it's a one-on-one sport. Oftentimes you have an idea even before you're stepping out onto the mat who you're going to be wrestling against. Yeah, that's true. And you can build that person up in your mind and say, oh my goodness, last time I wrestled this person, they, you know, they threw me, I lost, and it was brutal, it was ugly. And so even before the, the athlete has stepped onto the mat, they're totally defeated in their minds. And I asked them, well, why did you bother going out then? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> right? But it's like very simple, yeah. but like I never yeah. thought of it. And, and then they're like, well, I got to. So if you got to do it, then go out there and do a good job. Focus on what you're talents are not what your opponent's talents are right you can't control your opponent but you can control you and you're still bringing a lot to that situation so let's highlight that and let's focus on that it's good to know who your opponent is so you can anticipate what they're likely to do and prepare for it but I don't want you to think about your opponents so that you can just build them up in your mind and completely erode your self-confidence. Yeah, I think, I mean, confidence is such a key component to performing well. Um, I guess, yeah, when, when an athlete feels like they've lost confidence, how, how would you bring them back sort of up to The key to be? confidence is success, right? So what we need to do is find ways to create small victories okay. and hold on to that and build on those small victories. If an athlete has lost confidence, we'll talk about what what's your expectation in this upcoming performance? Uh, what can you reasonably expect of yourself? What is likely to work for you in this upcoming performance? So, so let's, let's just focus on that. Let's just pick one thing. And it may not necessarily be in terms of the outcome, but it may be more in terms of how you want to feel when you're out there. Uh, So, you know, given the stage you're at right now, uh, you don't feel that there's a possibility of you having a win in the situation. Okay, we accept that. What can you get out of the situation if you went out and performed? Uh, How about just the feeling of enjoying the performance how about we start with that let's start with something simple just go out there and have a good time now it doesn't mean that you're goofing off it means that you're just taking all the pressure off of yourself and saying I'm just going to go out there do what I have to do and enjoy it and when I've 
told athletes to do that, inevitably what happens is they end up having a good performance because they've taken the pressure off of themselves. And, and they come away feeling good about the sport again. And so that's really key uh, to motivation and also confidence, right? So, oh, that was really enjoyable doing that. Okay, let's try to repeat that. And let's just add one more thing to it for you to do and and slowly build up that way. Yeah, I think having fun is always key. And yeah. As elite athletes, you always need to remind yourself that mm-hmm. because it's so interesting because you you started this thing because you loved it and you had right. so much fun and it can become like a, a source of pain sometimes. Yeah. You're like, oh, like, why do I care so much? Mm-hmm. You know, it brings me sadness in a particular yeah. moment and stuff. And I've had friends and I've always, I said it myself, it's just like, okay, just remember when you were little, like just have <laughs> yeah. fun, you know? Yeah. But wh- why do you think fun is, is such a key component to performing well it's an interesting concept i yeah because you could do a good job at work and not love it though yeah it's key to passion i think you need to be passionate about what you're doing whether it be in sport or elsewhere in life to really have that sense of accomplishment of fulfillment of joy and emotionality is part of that you can have passion and not be emotional. So, you know, what you were talking about earlier, having those, high, you know, those highs and lows, being able to laugh and cry all in the same day, that's that's a result of being passionate about your sport. And part of that passion involves commitment, uh, perseverance. That's, that's all part of it, right? Being able to delay gratification even, recognizing that not every single time I do this, uh, I'm going to feel wonderful about it, but knowing that they're in the long term, I'm going to be really happy that I did this. Um, and, and so definitely the enjoyment is a key component of sustaining your motivation and your intrinsic motivation, right? There's extrinsic rewards for what we do sometimes. Uh, Sometimes. Sometimes. Sometimes there's a financial payout. (laughs) But even even that is not always enough, right? So you could be making a lot of money doing what you do or getting a lot of uh, rewards or uh, acknowledgement for what you're doing, but it's still not fulfilling. You need that intrinsic motivation and that stems from your passion for what you're doing. Very true. We've talked about a lot of really interesting things, and I think we can go on for two hours. I think it's already been an hour. <laughs> Has it really? I think yeah. so. I could talk about this all day. We'll have to come back. I have yeah. like three different like lines of thought, and I was like, okay, this could go on for another two hours. <laughs> want to thank you so much for coming in. It was always insightful. Always, it's been my uh, pleasure. Yeah, it, it was great having you here, yeah. and I think Mel and I learned. Yeah, I learned, learned a, a ton. I mean, I'm just like surprised I've never seen a psychologist, a sports psychologist. <laughs> But it's again, it's just like neglected tool. I mean, your brain, yeah. like it's more than 70% of the game, but we forget about it. Yeah. And it's not just for when there's a problem, right? You can just come in and talk to a sports psychologist, even when things are going really well and uh, explore uh, what 
what is out there you know maybe that sports psychologist has a great book to recommend to you Mm -hmm. or has just read an interesting article and says hey why don't you want you know maybe you might want to try this yeah Yeah. maybe you should start a podcast (laughs) (laughs) that could be fun i would subscribe (laughs) i feel like i learned a lot today fantastic well thank you so much for joining and Yes, if you're interested, we'll probably have you on again because I want to continue this Part conversation. Yeah. I'd be very happy to do that. Awesome. My pleasure. Thank you. You're welcome. Hi, I'm Tefera Jemian, one of the hosts of Yeah, a podcast on the Upford Network. We're talking about young adult literature, reviewing new releases, revisiting old classics, and exploring what the YA genre can teach us at any age. Join me and my co-host, Hannah Bailey, as we talk about friendships, dating, family relationships, sexuality, experiences of queerness, body politics, and more through the lens of our favorite YA novels, as well as books we're just discovering. The Yeah Podcast, available through the Upford Network and on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and wherever else you find your podcasts. This is our book club, and you're invited. I'm Julian McKenzie, co-host of the Scrum Podcast, a sports show I'm doing with my podcasting partner in crime, Tristan Damore, on the UpFord Network. Every week, we analyze something different from the Canadian sports media landscape. Lack of diversity, getting a job in the field, coverage of different sports, and answering some of the harder questions. Through a combination of back-and-forth discussion and high-profile guest interviews, we're aiming to figure out exactly what's up in the world of sports. Find us wherever podcasts are sold. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, SoundCloud, Message in a Bottle, Morse Code, Telegram, Singing Telegram, Target, Walgreens, Bird's Nest, Dad's Shed, uh, and a crowded convention center bathroom. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at sass underscore on the go, at Mel the Rock, and at Last Stretch Pod. Our theme music is by James Blonde. You could find their music at jamesblonde.ca. This show is produced and edited by Tom Zalatni for the Upfront Network. Find out about all our great shows at upfrontnetwork.com. See you next week. Mm-hmm.